everybody welcome back to exploring the lord of the rings this is session number 208 uh, as we continue to say our goodbyes to rivendell after a nice long visit you have to admit we continue to work our way through who knows maybe we'll get up to no we're not going to actually do the poem tonight like that's crazy talk but who knows maybe perhaps there's a chance we will even get so far as up to but not including the poem. We'll see uh, how long it takes us to uh, exchange mathems. But anyway, um, uh, quick announcements before we begin. First, I just wanted to, uh, I have some uh, holiday-themed announcements today. Uh, uh, Signum is here to provide you your unusual Signum, uh, your, your unusual holiday gift uh, ideas. Uh, we have, of course, not only uh, a really cool array of uh, holiday uh, uh, designs in our merch store, so you can get all kinds of, uh, of fun things there. If you go to our Signum Redbubble store, including some brand new um, uh, some brand, brand new designs. One uh, uh, popular one that we just added uh, was... Um one popular one popular one that just added was the uh, uh, a quote that we stumbled across together uh, in the nature of Middle Earth discussions that we've been having on Wednesday nights uh, in this one place where Tolkien waxed particularly Tolkienian uh, and uh, was talking about language being the primary art. Uh, so we uh, we we put a uh, we put we put that design just the the phrase language is the primary art uh, in our uh, uh, in our uh, in our store. Uh, it has uh, uh, been popular so far. Uh, anyway, um, so yes, yeah, so we have... Um so we have that. We also have, of course, our annual special on our Anytime Audits. If you've always thought of sitting in on one of our uh, master's degree courses, we have our Anytime Audits, which are totally asynchronous. So what, what, what happens, basically, is you're able to get access to all of the lectures and materials for the classes uh, so that you can kind of go through and listen through on your own pace. And... Uh, uh, that's, uh, that's so th that, of course we always have that our, and, and you, so you can buy a, uh, a, a gift code for that. So you can give at any time audit as a gift as well to people. And also, of course, this year we also have space tokens. Um, we have a whole bunch of people who have purchased tokens, uh, to give them away. Uh, that's, there's been a, there's been a lot of, uh, there's been a lot of gifting. There's been a lot of, uh, token mathems being circulated, uh, among our community here already. Um, um, and they make uh, just wonderful gifts. And of course, if you give a token to somebody, then they become a token holder just like they bought it, which means they can select whatever module they want to take. You're not just kind of, you know, pushing them into one particular module. You can give them a token and then they can select their own modules. And that means they can participate in the process of choosing which of our candidate modules get confirmed. So, you know, moving forward from here. So uh, that uh, uh, that's. Uh, been again it's been fun to integrate folks into that process um 
and uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, I definitely encourage that. It's a really fun kind of group activity. There have been a bunch, you know, some people who have started doing that. Uh, some people who have started uh, basically saying, um, you know, like uh, getting a, a bunch of tokens and giving away several and doing a, doing a module together uh, with, a, with a bunch of friends or family. That's uh, something that has started to happen and that I think is a pretty awesome thing to see happen. So definitely encourage that. Uh, to answer your question, uh, Aslan's Compass, no, space classes will not have recordings. Um, we're, we're not planning to record those. Um, those are live sessions uh, and, you know, they're live small group sessions and we don't want to you know, make people feel uncomfortable about like being recorded. You know, a lot of people feel pretty inhibited if they know the session is being recorded. Um, so it's really just, they're just designed to be live synchronous sessions uh, for the live attendees. So at this point, we do not have any plans uh, to record those. Uh, can I imagine doing like some recorded ones in the future? Yeah, I kind of can. You know, we'll see if we kind of do something like that. Um, it'd have to be under special circumstances, but um, I can imagine kind of doing something like that maybe. But right now that that is not the plan. Um, so, yeah, yeah. And they're, they're pretty, uh, and it's not, they, they meet twice a week you know, for the month. So it's, uh, uh, it's, it's not like a, 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 an intense commitment. Uh, you know, when you sign up. All right. So those are the things that are happening. Want to encourage folks uh, to look into that, especially as we get into the holiday season. And as a quick reminder, I'll talk about this again at the end. I will be here broadcasting as usual next week. Um, I am almost positive I will be here broadcasting as usual next week. Um, the only thing that I, next Tuesday is that's the day that my mother-in-law is arriving in town. So unless something unexpected happens, uh, that, um, something unexpected uh, in the mother-in-law category that happens, uh, I should be broadcasting as usual. And I, I don't think uh, there will be any problems there. But anyway, that's um, that's what. Uh, so I, I am planning uh, to uh, uh, to be um, uh, to be back as usual next week. Um, and so I, I mean, I'm, I'm not I'm not planning right now to miss any time for uh, for Thanksgiving. There will be a week or two I will have to miss in uh, December. But um, but for now, I will uh, I, I I will be here. Um, okay. Um, <laughs> no admittance except on mother-in-law business, too, Juice Man. I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know about that. Uh, I'm uh, uh, I'm not saying that I would be here in the basement of my house hiding from my mother-in-law or anything. I'm just saying that uh, I, it's mostly, if anything strange happens uh, in the uh, uh, in the category of uh, uh, her flight getting in, basically, is the main thing. But. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, yeah, yeah. No, Bart, I'm glad to say she is not, in fact, a Sackville Baggins. Uh, 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 all, is, uh, all is relatively well on that front. All right. Um, Fort Thomas asks, uh, is there going to be a live session for Yule again this year? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'll have to uh, uh, talk with our people and see if we were planning that um, or not. I'm not 100% sure. Um, if, uh, that's going to be happening again this year or not. Um, yeah, 
that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that one, uh, but I will. I will look into it. I will look into it. Um, all right, let us jump back into the text. We had just done the transfer of the sword, right? Uh, Bilbo had just given Frodo his sword. And we were looking last week in particular at the way that this was establishing a continuity uh, of stories uh, for Frodo. You know, we started off with, uh, or we were noting how we as readers were being reminded of Frodo and Sam hearing the story of Baron and Luthien, right? Right before we retired to Bilbo's room for the giving of gifts uh, and the giving of his sword. So having, um, you know, sort of made that connection with Baron and Luthien, we then get this intermediary connection with The Hobbit, which picks up, of course, on many parallels uh, and some anti-parallels that we've seen before. Um, but establishing, you know, uh, the, and we so we talked last time about several kinds of uh, consequences or implications of Frodo's journey being placed into a there and back again context by Bilbo um, and seeing, and we looked especially at Bilbo's book, which he was reading from, uh, which seemed uh, very unfinished, right? And again, thinking about uh, those great tales. Um, but now, of course, we have another gift to give. And I've been making lots of Matham jokes because I think that, um, well, I think that they're very appropriate, actually. As it is, of course, the, the concept of the Matham um, is a very... A matham, of course, is like a useless old thing that's been circulating around the district, right? From one person's birthday to another, uh, it keeps getting gifted and re-gifted uh, around, uh, you know, until like somebody finally keeps it out of guilt or something like that, right? Um, is sort of the canonical definition of a matham. And um, there's, a, there's an interesting irony, right? Um, because... Of course, in the medieval tradition with which Tolkien was most familiar, that is, within the Anglo-Saxon tradition, re-gifting is kind of a big deal, right? Um, to give someone a present that's brand new is a little lame, right? I mean, the really cool presents are a gift that you give to someone that has a history, Right. You give someone a gift and it is famous for having belonged to someone else before and someone else gave it to you. And now you're giving it to them. Right. Um, you know, that's um, that's not uh, far from being a, a kind of slightly dishonorable uh, uh, and dishonorable isn't quite the right word. But, um, you know, there's. Um, it's certainly a little bit. Um, lame. Right. Uh, to re-gift something like that. Of course, you know, when we think about re-gifting, it seems like an insult to the person who gave it to us. Right. Somebody gives us a gift and we re-gift it to somebody else. Right. Um, but um, but yeah, this was, of course, the opposite of uh, of the case back in the day. And one of the reasons that it is Again, back to the Anglo-Saxon context, and here I'm especially thinking about, um, you know, Beowulf and, and the big deal that is made of the, you know, the, the gift seat of Hrothgar. I'm thinking here of Alyssa uh, uh, House Thomas uh, did a presentation uh, on Beowulf at, um, 
uh, at Baymut, uh, and she was talking about the the gift seat of Hrothgar and uh, that that passage where uh, Grendel dares not approach the gift seat for some reason. Right? We don't. Nobody knows exactly why he wouldn't approach the gift seat. And it was like Hrothgar wasn't even on it. Right? He was empty. He was in the dark. Um, but he wouldn't. Uh, he wouldn't. He wouldn't approach there. Um, and um, anyway, so. Uh, so one of the reasons that it's good to receive gifts, right? It's not because you want to use them, certainly not because you're going to like sell them or spend them or something like that, but it's so that you can re-gift it, right? I mean, you are, honor is given more by the giving than by the receiving of gifts. And so, so yeah, I, you know, you keep it. And then in a later ceremony, you give it to somebody else and you get great honor from that. So the, the kind of tension, right, between that heroic, you know, sort of Germanic heroic tradition with which Tolkien was intimately familiar and this concept of, of Shire Mathams circulating around the district um, is, it's, it's funny, right? I mean, it's a little, it's a little comical, right? That uh, that that particular tension, but especially so in this instance, because of course here we have a thing that is happening, which is in one sense precisely in that Germanic heroic tradition, right? Bilbo received his mithril coat from Thorin on a very significant occasion, right? On the occasion of Thorin's return uh, to the halls under the mountain. Um, and, uh, you know, Bilbo's essentially successful uh, job as burglar, right? Um, he was as a gift and a reward given uh, the mithril coat uh, by Thorin. And, re- and you- you'll notice, by the way, that Bilbo always remembers that. Um, this is always this is always spoken of as the dwarf mail that Thorin gave me, right? I mean, uh, it's it's the giving uh, even more than the gift um, that is really important in Bilbo's memory of this thing, as we'll see. But um, and now he's giving it to Frodo, right? Um, so on the one hand, as I say, this is this scene that we're about to read is very much in that heroic. Germanic tradition. But at the same time, the thing that is being given was also literally sitting in the Matham house, right? Um, but um, anyway, so so I think that Tolkien is actually kind of having some fun on purpose with the uh, heroic Germanic tradition. Um, uh, Yes. Now, you're right, um, Bjorning, that um, uh, objects and useful objects were much more precious uh, in uh, the Middle Ages. You're right. Um, uh, And um, what's more, as I think uh, Bjorning Tolkien would probably have added to your observation there, um, is um, that uh, things were also better made. Uh, That is... Tolkien had a big problem with mass-produced junk in the 20th century um, and hearkened back to the day when even things like a chair that you sat on at table was something that was handmade by a carpenter who cared about his craft um, as opposed to something, well, literally turned out uh, in, a, you know, in an assembly line. Um, 
And so, yes, and and absolutely, Bartram, these things were more expensive, too. And that's another reason why these gifts were a big deal. Um, A sword uh, was huge. I mean, a a sword was uh, like the, as far as an investment is concerned, a good sword, you know, in the Anglo-Saxon era was uh, uh, about the equivalent of uh, not just a car, like a nice car, right? Like a luxury car. If you had, if you had a a good sword, um, I mean, it was a, it was a huge deal, a huge deal. Um, But um, anyway, so um, yeah. Okay, so with that preamble, both to um, explain the, the the teasing I'm doing about this Matham that Bilbo is passing on, um, this, the regifting moment here, uh, but also um, uh, yeah, again, I think he's very aware of both of these traditions, and I think that we can see them both in uh, uh, in, in in tension here in this passage. Also, there is this, said Bilbo, bringing out a parcel, which seemed to be rather heavy for its size. He unwound several folds of old cloth and held up a small shirt of mail. It was close woven of many rings, as supple almost as linen, cold as ice, and harder than steel. It shone like moonlit silver and was studded with white gems. With it was a belt of pearl and crystal. It's a pretty thing, isn't it, said Bilbo, moving it in the light, and useful, it is my dwarf mail that Thorin gave me. I got it back from Mickle Delving before I started and packed it with my luggage. I brought it all. I brought all the mementos of my journey away with me, except the ring. But I did not expect to use this, and I don't need it now, except to look at sometimes. You hardly feel any weight when you put it on. I should look. Well, I don't think I should look right in it," said Frodo. "Just what I said myself," said Bilbo. "But never mind about looks." You can wear it under your under your outer clothes. Come on, you must share this secret with me. Don't tell anybody else. But I should feel happier if I knew you were wearing it. I have a fancy it would turn even the knives of the Black Riders, he ended in a low voice. All right. Um, likely about says, I'm, a, I'm sort of astonished that Frodo had never seen the mithril coat. I think he has. I don't think he can possibly have avoided seeing it. Um... Yeah, I I'm sure he's seen it before. Um, yeah, I'm sure he's seen it before. Um, again, he almost has to have. I mean, it's been in like public circulation. It's been sitting in the Matham House. Now, it doesn't mean he necessarily goes to the Matham House to visit it all the time. Um, but um, he is. But it, notice that. Um, yeah. <clears throat> it's possible that Bilbo mentioned it in the telling. Oh, Bilbo certainly would have mentioned it in telling the story of his journeys, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. And Silkwest, could I agree? Frodo doesn't act exactly surprised to see it. The description of it does kind of give the impression. <clears throat> I could see how that could lead one to think that, like, maybe he was, um, you know, he hadn't seen it before, given the detail of the description. But there, I think that's a, you know, just a narrative technique there to to you know he is um he's describing it because it's important it's going to be important on many future occasions uh how staggering this coat is um yeah so anyway 
Also, notice the uh, rather unceremonious way that Bilbo brings it out, right? It's, um, it's a parcel which seemed to be rather heavy for its size. Um, that gives me the impression that it's quite small, because we know it's not heavy, objectively speaking, right? So it can't be folded into a large bundle, which seemed heavy for its size. Because if it were a large bundle heavy for its size, then it wouldn't be true um, that it, uh, that it, that you hardly feel any weight when you put it on. Um, it's um, supple almost as linen, right? So it's, uh, it's, it's very lightweight. That suggests to me that he um, has folded it up. Like, it's, I mean, presumably he didn't wad it up, right? He didn't just crumple it up and then wrap it up. But I think it's folded down into a, a, a quite small parcel, which looks like it could be, you know, something or sort of anything, um, but would be heavy for its size, right? If it were folded up into the size of like a, I don't know, like a sandwich or something, right? It could be folded up like that. Uh, and then it would be kind of heavy for its weight. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. What strikes me here? He unwound several folds of old cloth, right? Um, I think you, I, I wonder, how many times can you fold a mithril coat? I think we have to do a reenactment of this. Uh, so everybody bring your mithril coat and we'll do a folding. Um, I wonder how many times you can fold it. How many times do you think you can fold a mithril coat? I think... I bet you... You could, you could like try fold it and then roll it up and it would be, and it would be pretty, uh, I mean, I get, I don't, you wouldn't actually fold it like paper anyway. You'd roll it, right? You'd, I, I, I would try fold it and then I would roll it up. I think that's how, I think that's how I'd do it. If I were wadding up a mithril coat and stowing it, uh, I think that's, um, I think that's what I would do. Um, Yeah, yeah. No, and I, I assume that the rings are very small indeed. Um, yes. Uh, the fact that it's as supple almost as linen suggests, and also the fact that it says it was close woven of many rings, right? Um, so these are not big old honking uh, rings um, like, you know, chain mail you might have seen at a museum or something like that. Um, uh, but um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, so he's folded it up into a... He's, he's put it together into a small bundle, right? Um, and then he's wound it around with several folds of old cloth, right? What do you notice? What does that suggest to you? I think, that's, I think this tells us something fairly striking, doesn't it? In the Shire, this thing was on display in the Matham House, right? In the museum at Mickle Delving. Um, I think that it is possible 
that the old cloth, we're not told what color the old cloth is. Maybe it's hard to tell what color the old cloth is. Maybe it was, it might have been uh, dark green at one point. Um, but it's possible that that's the case, that we're given no indication of that. Though remember, we were given that clear indication back in chapter one. Bilbo's hiding this, right? Bilbo has it the opposite of on display. He has it shut away in a box, wrapped up into a very small parcel, wound up inside several folds of old cloth, right? Now, I am not suggesting that he's worried somebody's going to pinch it, right? I don't think that this means Bilbo is getting paranoid in his old age and is afraid someone's going to sneak in and steal his mithril coat. What I think it does mean, though, is that he is not displaying this. He is keeping it secret. He is keeping this secret. I don't quite know why. Maybe he doesn't know why, but um, uh, but yeah, I don't think, again, I doubt that he's trying to protect it or feels that he needs to protect it. That does not feel right to me at all. I can't see why Bilbo would think that in Rivendell. Um, but um, but it's interesting because it was, I, Kurtzimus, I do think this is a sign of humility on his part. Um, this is the coat of an elf prince, right? And um, uh, yeah, I'm reminded of uh, Glowen's words at the council, right? I see elf lords here, right? Bilbo is constantly surrounded by elf princes, right? I mean, he could uh, he could bring it out on occasion, right? He could, or he could at least hang it, you know, get a stand for it and have it there in his room where he could see it all the time, right? No, it wouldn't look out of place in Rivendell, right? I'm sure he can walk down the hall and find older and more precious things, you know, on display various places in Rivendell. I bet they are. Um, I mean, Elrond's been around for a while, right? Um, uh, but, but he doesn't, he doesn't do that, right? Bilbo is not, he's not like, um, um, tried to fit in or anything. JJ says in the Shire, uh, he, uh, might look rather silly in one way, but in Rivendell, he'd look, look rather silly in quite a different way. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. He would, um, I, I, I agree. Now, Belonksmond, I really like that theory. Belonksmond says he might not want Elrond or Gandalf saying, you don't need that. You're not going on another adventure anymore because he secretly wants to go on another adventure. Yes, yes, I do believe. Um, I do believe that this is very likely um, the reason for that. And I wonder, Belonksmond, if this actually suggests something that we missed last time, right? Um, that is the significance of the phrase. Let me hang on a second. I need to scroll all the way down here. Um, in the uh, in the last one, where he said, um, uh, "Take it if you like. I shan't want it again. I expect, right?" And that at the time we kind of accepted that as uh, I mean it's a you know it's a humble thing for him to say he's trying to say it's not a big deal but I think we might have missed what a big deal that kind of is actually right um, 
I think that he has. No. We know that he has wanted to go on a journey. What journey did he want to go on? We know this. He told us this. That he's been... He has not thought he was retired for good. There's been a journey he's been spoiling to make. But which he hasn't been allowed to make. Gandalf and Elrond have repeatedly told him not to do it. Prior to this point. you remember that? He mentions it to Frodo. Yeah, J.J., going back to the Shire to fetch his ring after he heard about it and what a big deal it was and that the enemy was looking for it. Right? He's always, he's always wanted to... He, he, he said he volunteered to do that several times. And then in the council, he volunteers to take the ring again. Right? Um, and you'll remember... At the time, I was talking about Gandalf's response to that and how careful I think Gandalf is being there, gentle and kind and affectionate as well, um, but also a little bit cautious because things could be about to get sticky in that moment for all Gandalf can see, right? And then Bilbo laughs, as we discussed at the time, right? And the tension kind of dies there. Um, Bilbo... It's not until that moment in the Hall of Fire that Bill... I'm pretty convinced that it's not until that moment that, um, you know, that moment when he says, don't adventures ever have an end, right? Um, when he realizes, you know, I understand everything better now, right? That's the moment, I think, when Bilbo has really permanently given up the ring. And therefore... He's now actually and permanently retired. Especially since he made that offer to take the ring and it was refused. It's clear that he's... So he's... um, Yeah. When... um, When a football player gets injured and doesn't want to get taken out of the game. Uh, he will sometimes hold on on the sidelines, hold on to his helmet, right? Because it's an old trick for coaches to tell somebody to take his helmet away because if he doesn't have his helmet, he can't go back in the game, right? Um, and I wonder if Bilbo stashing his mithril, clo- mithril coat isn't something like that, right? Um, uh, you know... Gandalf, if he saw him have it, right, might say, if he knew that he had it there in his room, might say, you know, you're not going to need that again, Bilbo, are you, right? Um, why should he hang on to his sword? And, his, why, you know, remember, Gandalf assumes it's still collecting dust back in the Mickledelvin Matham house, where he's going to say that later on, right? Gandalf doesn't know that uh, Gandalf doesn't know that Bilbo has it. I mean, we will get that piece of evidence later on that Bilbo is not... It's not just that it's carefully kept up and he only takes it out on special occasions. He doesn't take... Gandalf does not know that he has it, right? Gandalf does not know that he has it. Um, 
yeah, yeah. They can take away my license, but they can't have my car keys. Something like that, Arnos. <laughs> Something like that. Um, yeah. So it occurs to me that when he says to Frodo in that last scene, that line that we just breezed past last time, I shan't need it again, I expect. This is a big moment for Bilbo, right? Um, he is. It's almost like he's making Frodo his heir all over again, right? You know, the adventure that he had thought to go on, right? To take up the ring again, to be the ring bearer for dubious reasons, right? I mean, his desire to go back to the Shire and fetch his ring is clearly a pretense, right? I mean, that has ring rationalization all over it, right? Um, And even his offer to be the ring bearer at the council is not obviously perfectly free of that. Again, there's more to it than that, right? And we know he's trying to protect Frodo as well, right? But there's got to be at least an element there of this is a way I could get my ring back, right? And it would be cool. It would be legit. I wouldn't be stealing it. I wouldn't be... It'd be... It would be in a noble, self-sacrificial way. And so everybody, even Gandalf, would approve of that, right? I mean, it's... it's um. I cannot believe that there isn't at least a percentage of that in Bilbo's mind when he does that, right? But when he gives up the ring at the Hall of Fire, and then when he again accepts that at the council and does not start going on another uh, tirade like in chapter one, um, you know, if you want my ring yourself, then say so, anything like that. Um, I think that it's... um, uh, you know, those are the moments, right? Bilbo has, Bilbo has won. He has, Bilbo has triumphed. And I think that we're seeing that triumph here um, in a um, uh, a really quiet way, but I think a really significant way. Um, so Belongsmond, yeah, you've totally convinced me. I am, uh, I am utterly won over to your way of thinking, Belongsmond, that his... Uh, folding it up and concealing it the way that he did really does suggest in his heart of hearts he was prepared for another journey, right? Um, And a moment's notice. Because those are the two things, right? I mean, if there are two things that he would want on a trip, right? If he's going to go off on an adventure, he's going to want his sword and his mithril coat, right? I mean, obviously his invisibility ring would have been at the top of his list, but inconveniently he doesn't have that anymore. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and his book, of course, Belongsman, yes. He would take his book too. But you'll notice, Belongsman, that that's exactly, that's the tension, right? Within Bilbo, right? His book is, of course, also certainly a thing he would never leave behind. But it is not connected to his... I mean, it's connected to his adventures in that. He's writing his adventures in it. But uh, on your adventures is not the place to write your... You you don't write your book while on the adventures. You write your book when you come home from the adventures, right? So um, it is almost like what we're seeing here uh, is him choosing his book over his coat and sword, right? Um, he's not personally going to be doing any more adventuring. It's like he's accepting. Remember Gandalf said this too, 
right? Um, that his role uh, in this story was over, except perhaps as a recorder, right? And so he's he's uh, he's owning that, right? He's owning that. He's choosing his book and his retirement, right? Um, uh, which remember he was explicitly connecting with his book in the in the council as well, right? Um, uh, talking about uh, the ending for his book, right, and uh, how much he was enjoying getting a chance to finish his book. Um, yes, that he will have, that he will retain. Um, but his sword and his coat, he is giving up, um, and that I think is. Yeah, the more I think about that, the more significant I think that this moment is in that way. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, you're right, Matt. You're right, Matt. And I wonder, uh, again, thinking back to that, um, to that heroic Germanic tradition, that I was discussing, um, Matt points out that within that tradition, there is a, uh, an additional and very significant title lurking, uh, from that tradition. Um, when a Lord who gives, Hrothgar in Beowulf is called one of his, one of the, 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 the phrases that's used to describe him because he is the great giver of gifts, the great Lord who give gifts in his hall, he is called the ring giver. And yes, Matt, obviously Tolkien would have been very aware of that concept of the ring giver and putting Bilbo into the position, juxtaposing Bilbo with this kind of Hrothgar-like figure, right? Uh, you know, the uh, the old man, uh, the great old man giving gifts to the, you know, to the strapping young hero, um, you know, re-gifting these great gifts which he received in his own adventurous youth, right, in his own heroic youth, um, upon the accomplishment of his own mighty deeds, and now he, you know, gives them to, you know, the new young hero. Um, he is exactly acting like a ring giver. And of course, uh, although this is not really a moment in most other ways, right? You know, in, in, in outward appearance, certainly this doesn't look much or sound much, uh, like the scene before Hrothgar's, uh, uh, gift seat. It is nevertheless, um, you know, of no one has the phrase ring giver ever been more, you know, uh, appropriately applied than to Bilbo. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that that's um, well remembered. Well remembered. Um, yeah. And Kendall, you're right. He is now exchanging his sword for a walking stick uh, and his coat for his book. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I know, Silk Westcott, it is stunning to imagine that Tolkien is might be making Beowulf references. It's pretty uncharacteristic. I know. I know. Um, um Yes, and Emily, of course, Sauron was also a gift giver. Anatar was the ring giver of old, right? And so there is definitely um, an irony there as well. But that I think Emily is part of the um, um, part of the sort of. It's like one of several ways in which you can tell that Sauron is is very evil. Right. Sauron is is undermining the giving of gifts itself. Right. It's not just a, a posture. It's not just a disguise. Right. It's not merely um, 
if I give presents, people will like me, right? And therefore, they'll think I'm nice, right? I mean, yes, that's that's also true, um, but it's it's not just that, right? Um, by characterizing himself as the giver of gifts, um, he is also, and you can hear this parallel much more strongly after you've read, as we did, uh, those of us who did the uh, Morgoth's Ring discussion last year, uh, when we were reading the Athrabeth um, and the Tale of Adonel and stuff that came after, that is Tolkien's uh, kind of draft version of Melkor's corruption of the original generation of men, right? That's how Melkor positioned himself when he was trying to put himself in the position of God, right? Um, I am the one who gives gifts, right? I am the one. You owe what you have to me, not to Eru, right? Um, that was Melkor's whole posture towards humanity, you know, in that first generation, in that um, sort of fall of man legend that uh, uh, that Tolkien wrote. And in Anatar, we can we can definitely hear an echo of that, right? He's he's posturing because remember, it's a scale thing, right? Um, when you call yourself the giver of gifts, and you're coming to Celebrimbor and Gilgalad, right? You know, you're coming to the greatest people in all of the lands, right? The greatest and most powerful. And you are coming to them and saying, I'm the giver of gifts. That's not a a, a posture that you take if you're... Um, again, it's you're not like, I'm going to give you presents to try to butter you up, right? To give presents, that is a, that is a power play, right? Um, you are claiming superiority, in, in, in a sense, right? Um, like, I am going to confer honor and benefit upon you through my gifts, right? It's a, it's a, it's a pretty significant, um, uh, um, a pretty significant uh, move by Anatar there. So he's claiming, again, not just to be a swell guy uh, uh, who gives away fun stuff, um, but uh, he was making a much more sort of significant uh, significant play there. Um, but again, coming... So, so again, my, my point is that that's just... It's like a, a, a much sort of a deeper... Um, deeper corruption of the whole gift-giving thing, right? Um, but anyway, okay. That is awesome. Yeah, Bowling Spot, I never thought of that before. Um... And I think, but I think that's exactly right. To see this moment as not just, I mean, it is certainly a passing of the torch from Bilbo to Frodo, right? It is obviously a manifestation of his very deep love and affection for Frodo, right? He is obviously caring for his safety more than anything else, right? Um, And he would give this sacrificially even if he did need it. Right? He doesn't need it anymore, right? Um, so in that sense, it's like the easier to give. What was he doing with it anyway, right? And that's, uh, um, and that's you know, kind of how he might try to play this. <clears throat> but it's a big deal. It's a big deal. He is giving Frodo a part of himself. Um, he is making uh, a kind of concession, which I think is a very, very big deal here. Um, now let's get back to the, uh, description here. So we got as far as sentence two, which is pretty good so far. Uh, it was close woven of many rings as supple, almost as linen, cold as ice and harder than steel. 
It shone like moonlit silver and was studded with white gems. Um, okay, so the poetic description is really interesting. Um, again, on the one hand, oh, yes, um, uh, Almeria, yeah, this is, this is Christmas morning. I'm pretty sure this is Christmas morning that this is happening. Um, it's the last day. Um, so I think, I mean, it's conceivable that the last day would be characterized as like their last day there. In other words, the day before they left. Um, so it is conceivable that it's Christmas Eve that this gift giving is happening on. Um, but it is also possible that it is the last day. Like today's the last day we're leaving today. And so before they're leaving, while Sam is busy off, not packing rope, uh, Frodo is receiving gifts from Bilbo. Um, but yes, you're right, uh, Corey, that gift-giving on Christmas Eve is also very traditional. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So, um, the poetic description. It was close woven of many rings. Okay. That's just a physical description. As supple, almost as linen, cold as ice, and harder than steel. It shone like moonlit silver and was studded with white gems. Um, yeah. By the way, Bat, I agree with you. I, I think it's Christmas morning. Um, and I think it's Christmas morning for exactly the reason that Matt says. Um, Matt is going to... Uh, Matt's pointing out that Bil Bilbo's going to have him put it on at the end of this passage, um, which suggests that they're actually about to leave. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I agree. Um, I agree that... Um, yeah, cold as ice. I don't think that's a reference to the fish riddle. Because, um, uh, well, of course, the fish was cold as death, which is not a comparison you would necessarily want to make. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see if we can get more evidence about when exactly they leave. But, uh, uh, but we'll see. That's uh, hopefully we'll get to the departure by Christmas. I think we'll get to the departure by Christmas. We'll be doing the poem beginning in December. It's going to be close. It's it's going to be right there. It's going to be right there. I bet you that we're going to be uh, we're going to be discussing like the uh, like Christmas week. Uh, you know, like the, or the week after Christmas, the week right, right before Christmas is when I'll be away. But like right around in there is when we're going to be discussing like Gimli and Elrond's uh, 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 aphorism contest and all kinds of things. So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, anyway, um, I don't remember Matt. I don't remember if. Uh, one of the descriptions of armor in Beowulf uh, calls on rhyme or hoarfrost. Maybe I, I'm not. I'm not remembering it that detailed uh, there. But um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's assuming we're not still on this paragraph. We're so almost done. But but hang on. Here's what I'm trying to. Here's what I'm trying to focus on. Who's our narrator here? Who wrote that line? Those two sentences. 
It was close woven of many rings, as supple almost as linen, cold as ice and harder than steel. It shone like moonlit silver and was studded with many white gems. It was studded with white gems. Who do you think? Frodo? Sam? Findigo. Bilbo is a possibility. Bilbo is a possibility. I think Findigil is a candidate. I think a legitimate candidate. Um, there's something in the tone. Whenever the cadence gets this explicitly poetic, um, I uh, yeah, the heightened and nearly mythic language uh, Neoplatonian is just the kind of thing that we do associate with um, Findigil. Although um, it's... Uh, he tends to... Findigil, by our reading, right, tends to butt in, especially around descriptions of, uh, uh, of the king, right, of Aragorn and of the queen. Um, but... Um, yeah, Mad Violinist, I'm also not quite sure that it is purple, quite purple enough. And also, I'm not sure that Findigil would wax poetic about this. Um, again, we've we've never had a passage that I'm convinced is Findigil that uh, was not like Gondorian in some sense, right? Um I think. I would be, um, I'm not sure who, who, who said it just a minute ago. Um, yeah, Captain Mo, I'm with you. I think I'm on Team Sam. Um, for Almerea, exactly the reason you just said, that he would have both an epic and sentimental, sentimental view uh, toward the coat. Um, it is possible that Frodo is honoring Bilbo's gift with this poetry. Um, I do think, Bjorning, that that's... Uh, that that's very possible. That that's very possible. Um, yes, Frodo is honoring Bilbo's gift with his poetry. That would be... The, if Frodo did write this, that's why he would do it this way, right? He would want in this moment to emphasize the significance of the gift. Um, the, you know, what, uh, what, a, what, a, what a kingly gift this was uh, for Bilbo to give. Um, but yeah, Sam, I think it's certainly poetic enough for Sam. We know that Sam, of course, also does lapse into a poetic kind of diction. And Almerea, it is exactly his sentimentality um, uh, towards this coat of Frodo's, right? Um, now, remember, there's also a narrative reason for this. It is important to emphasize how striking the coat is, right? How gorgeous, um, how resplendent this coat is. Because it's going to be important at several future points. Remember, hundreds of orcs are going to lose their lives on account of this coat, right? Um, and so establishing that this is an object that is going to be a, an object of remarkable uh, desire uh, to anyone who is of a covetous frame of mind uh, is important for plot purposes. But um, uh, but I, th I think that I, I, I certainly don't think it's above Sam's poetic capability, especially later Sam, right? This is, uh, remember when we're talking about Sam's hand uh, anywhere 
in the narrative. We're talking about editorial Sam, right? Um, Bilbo has started the book. Frodo's going to finish the book. And then Sam is going to edit the book. And then Findigil is going to copy the book uh, and possibly beef up some bits. Um, so Findigil's intrusions should be fewest. And for my money anyway, there needs to be a reason, right? Um, there needs to be a reason why Findigil would do it. Right, because he's not just gonna probably not going to just be like, wow, this could use a little spicing up in places, right? You know, he's he's. Uh, but again, especially the the one I am most convinced that Findigil added, my favorite uh, Findigil interpretation of ours uh, is that description of Arwen at the at the feast uh, when Frodo first sees her. Um, I love that as a uh, as a Findigilian uh, uh, intrusion because that seems like exactly the kind of intrusion uh, that he would make and a sufficient. Uh, a more than sufficient uh, justification uh, for uh, for intruding, and possibly that description of the sword that we were talking about just recently. Um, but yes, um, Balance Minded is a more uh, it is a more mature Sam, right? So the Sam, the narrator Sam, this is not current Sam, right? This is Sam, uh, you know, several years later. We don't even know exactly when Sam set himself to whatever editorial role he set himself. I can't imagine he started doing that immediately upon Frodo's departure, right? Even. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly, JJ. I would think Sam preparing to read the book to his kids is more or less when we would begin to get editorial Sam uh, working there. And editorial Sam, now in his, you know, married Sam in his middle age, scholar Sam, right, having inherited Bilbo's books of lore uh, and continued uh, his study of elvish things, Sam having very consciously taken up the mantle of the person. Remember, we talked about this last time, right, of Bilbo being consciously taking up the mantle of keeping the legends of the old world alive in the new world that's coming. And we talked about the significance, perhaps even the significance in the minds of Elrond and other elves, such as Lindir potentially, and others um, who perhaps take Bilbo's poetry much more seriously than he thinks that they do or thinks that they should, right? Um, because he doesn't think it good enough, but they know how important it is that somebody is going to remain uh, to be uh, continuing to pass these stories down. But um, Bilbo, of course, it is Sam who is going to be Bilbo's heir, um, in in this, right? He is he is the one who is going to be, um, uh, he is the one who is going to be carrying on very self consciously, carrying on that tradition of handing the stories down. He will be corrupting a new generation of Hobbit youth, learning them their letters, right, and then teaching them stories about elves and teaching them to recite poems about Gilgalad, the Elven King. Um, so. Anyway, um, uh, I, um, yeah, so do I think that that's, so that's the Sam that we're talking, we need to remember that that's the Sam that we're talking about here, right, um, when we talk about editorial Sam, um, but, um, yeah, yeah, so, okay, personally, I would say Sam, I'm totally open to the Frodo reading, I don't think, um, I think that it's very possible 
that Frodo could have written this um, and might have written this in honor of Bilbo. Um, but I do uh, personally kind of like the Sam, the Sam reading there. Um, it's a pretty thing, isn't it? said Bilbo, moving it in the light. And useful. It is my dwarf mail that Thorin gave me. I got it back from Mickle Delving before I started and packed it with my luggage. I brought all the mementos of my journey away with me, except the ring. But I did not expect to use this, and I don't need it now, except to look at sometimes. You hardly feel any weight when you put it on. This is a complicated speech from, uh, uh, from Bilbo here. First movement, right? Understatement. It's a pretty thing, isn't it? And useful. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. It is It is both pretty and it is also useful. Uh, Kendall points out pretty and useful like the ring. Uh, yes, the ring also was both pretty and also useful. Um, but, um, yes, yes. Um, I, so the Bilbo's first move, I think, is both to underplay it, right? Throughout, Bilbo is going to be downplaying the significance of the gift, right? This is where that tension of the, um, that tension between the Matham concept and the heroic Germanic tradition of gift-giving concept uh, becomes really apparent, right? Um, (laughs) Hrothgar, on his giving seat, and on his gift seat, does not downplay, does not say like, oh, here's a little thing, it's nothing really, um, but uh, I thought you might like it, right? That is not how you give gifts, right, uh, from the gift seat. Um, um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, that is definitely not what you do. Um, and yes, the downplaying uh, Captain Mo is Bilbo talking like hobbits do. I agree, I agree. Um, and... Uh, that is interesting, Mad Violinist. Mad Violinist says, interestingly, we have no evidence from the Hobbit that Bilbo ever used the mail coat. Even in the Battle of Five Armies, he went invisible rather than relying on the mail coat. I bet you he was wearing it. Um, I bet you he was wearing it. Yes. Wait. He's wearing it when he sneaks into the elf camp, isn't he? Isn't that described when they're describing how odd he looks, like how Bard and the Elven King don't know what to make of him, right? I think he's wearing it then. Is he? Yes, he's more deserving of it than many who have looked more comely in it. Yeah, 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 that's right. That's right. That's, 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 that, that's what I was remembering. That's what I was remembering. So he definitely wore it. But I agree, like, he believes, you know, he's going to say I have a fancy it would turn even the knives of the Black Riders. Um, You know, what, um, explain the logic underlying that conclusion, please, right? Like, has he seen it? But we do have to remember, we do have to remember uh, that... um, it did stop Thorin from shooting him. Remember, Thorin points it out that he's wearing it too. That's right. Um, you have mail on, right? Um, 
but he's going to sting his uh, he's going to sting his feet, right? Uh, because he can't he can't kill him with arrows because uh, that's it. You have mail upon you, which was made by my folk and is too good for you, and it, it cannot be pierced by arrows. But if you do not hasten, I will sting your miserable feet. There it is. Thank you, JJ. Um, yes, yes. So he has Thorin's word that it will stop arrows, I guess. Um, but I guess we should be careful. Bilbo has uh, has had other adventures, none quite as famous, right? But he's made other journeys, and uh, who knows what might have happened. Um, I bet you he's worn his uh, his mail coat. Um, I think, by the way, um, I think, by the way, that he gave it to the Matham House. Um, this was a theory... I was talking with Tony, Tony Mead, at... Uh, the first Magnolia moot, um, uh, <laughs> AKA the only Magnolia moot so far, I think. Hopefully we'll fix that in the spring. Um, but back at Magnolia moot, um, Tony was there and Tony and I were talking and we, we were theorizing that, and I think I've talked about this before, that Bilbo's the 60 years, right. When Bilbo was back in the Shire, um, were kind of divided into two periods, right? There was like, the period of Bilbo traveling and adventuring when he was often seen wandering about and, and it was said that he went to visit elves and all this kind of thing. Um, and then he settles down and he adopts Frodo. Like when his younger cousins start growing up, like he had no companions, right? He was still kind of a loner. Um, and then he, um, uh, and then he adopts Frodo and he, you know, makes friends with his younger cousins and he sort of settles down and becomes teacher Bilbo, right? That's when he begins, that's when he teaches Sam his letters. And, and so, you know, he, he goes from, I'm like gathering lore and new songs and learning things and seeing the world, uh, to, or at least, you know, the world roundabout, um, uh, to now I'm going to, I'm going to teach, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to teach Frodo. I'm going to teach Sam. Um, I'm going to, uh, you know, be a bad influence on the next generation full time. And I, my suspicion is that that that's when he gave it to, uh, to the Matham house essentially. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and likely about, I agree with you that, uh, likely about says I can picture Bilbo sitting beside Frodo as Elrond tried to heal him and Bilbo thinking to himself that perhaps the mithril coat might've saved Frodo this wound. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Yes, yes. That uh, having being very conscious, having been there with you know through Frodo's whole um, uh, convalescence, he is very conscious that um, of of Frodo's danger, right, and of uh, uh, how you know close to death he came, death and worse he came uh, from that wound. So yeah, yeah, um, it may well be, uh, Mister Bigger, as you say, the catalyst for giving it to him. Um, but anyway, okay, back to his speech. It's a pretty thing, isn't it? And useful. So not only is he using, uh, uh, you know, very understated words, right? But even like just, you know, I'm going to give you this simple practical gift, right? Um, and that's, of course, what everyone hated hearing as kids at Christmas time uh, from their parents. But, um, you know, if... Uh, if, if your parents handed you a present and said, this will be useful, right? Uh, didn't your heart kind of sink a bit? Um, but um, 
that's the way that he characterizes it. This is a purely, purely practical, purely practical gift. Um, it is my dwarf mail that Thorin gave me. So again, he immediately goes back to the giving. So having started in sentence one with the, you know, downplaying Hobbit style, oh, this is just an old madam, right? Uh, then to this acknowledgement, right, of that uh, heroic gift-giving tradition, right? Thorin gave this to me uh, when I, you know, uh, first stood within the lonely... Well, third time stood within the lonely mountain. The first time he stood, anyway, within the lonely mountain um, uh, after Smaug's uh, had been evicted uh, permanently, though they didn't know it at the time. Um, and um, uh, and now here on the day of your setting off on your great uh, quest, I now give it to you, right? So that second sentence, though still in a very simple way, gives a nod towards that. It is my dwarf mail that Thorin gave me. I got it back from Mickle Delving before I started, and I packed it with my lug and packed it with my luggage. I brought all the mementos of my journey away with me, except the ring. What do those two sentences say? Those two sentences say, it does mean a lot to me, right? It does mean a lot to me. I packed it with my luggage. I took it away with me. Why? I brought all the mementos of my journey away with me, except the ring. Except the ring. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, it does mean more to him, Aranas, than merely being useful. Yes, yes. Um, I think, in this moment, I'm tempted. I'm tempted to read Accept the Ring in a very casual manner. That is, as we've said, I think that Bilbo is past the primary and secondary crises that he was going to have here, right? Um, he... The, what happened? What happened in the Hall of Fire and in the Council of Elrond? Those were both significant, right? Bilbo has now really and truly given away the ring. He has given it up in a way that he had not yet fully done prior to that, as evidenced by his repeated uh, suggestions that he go home and fetch it. Um, and um, he... The casual reference. I brought all the mementos of my journey away with me, except the ring. Um, he notes that the ring is exceptional, but it's only exceptional in the fact that that's the one he gave away. He alludes to the ring to emphasize not the importance of the ring, but the importance of the mithril coat, of all the other things, right? Um... He didn't bring the ring away, but he brought everything else, right? His mithril coat, his sword, 
that nasty old cloak that he still has that he borrowed from Dwalin, right? Um, uh, he, um, he kept all of those things, right? Even, by the way, lumping the ring into um, the category mementos of my journey, right? Downplays it in ways that he never has really done, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And he did give the ring away on his birthday, uh, Evil Dr. Cannon, which is an important thing to recall. Um, that is true. That is true. Um, but I did not expect to use this, and I don't need it now, except to look at sometimes. He still does look at it sometimes. He keeps it secret, Right? It's all rolled and folded up into a tiny little parcel, um, shoved into this uh, you know, chest which is kept uh tucked away, right? Um, but he still does take it out to look at it sometimes. Again, he's fond of it, right? He's uh attached to it. Um but um But yeah, he does not downplay that it means a lot to him, right? And he knows that Frodo knows that it means a lot to him. But I did not expect to use this. As we were just saying before, I'm not sure I believe him when he says that. I did not expect to use this. No, expect, not not expect, not expect. Um... Was he still cherishing a notion, right, um, that he himself was denying, right, in a sense? I think uh, quite, quite possibly, quite possibly. Um, now, Aspen, that's a really interesting observation here, that he's working to tie his identity to his accomplishments and not to the ring. Yes, I mean, the attachments that he has to his other moment, to the other mementos of his journey, are all wholesome. Right? Um, fond and honorable memories, um, whether they be fond memories of people, um, uh, of occasions, of accomplishments, right? I'm not sure it's all about just accomplishments, uh, because again, I mean, like his old dwarfhood is also a kind of self deprecating memento, right? Um, remembering him running out without his hat, for instance. Um, and yes, most of his accomplishments did come with the ring, Kurtzimus, so he has kind of distanced himself from it in that way. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. And I agree, Matt, that he is attached to mementos rather than wealth, which does show that his uh, his hoarding is of a particular and, and, and sort of more wholesome kind. Um, but yes, I agree, Eruach Hill, um, connecting him to other people. Yeah, I think that that's what he... Um, <clears throat> mementos of my journey. Again, that's what he calls them, right? These are the things that connect him to the old times. Um, you know, I think of Glow and Smile, which, is, uh, which comes from old memories, right? Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yes. Yes. Uh, I wonder... Kendall is uh, wondering if it's, in some sense, his 
looking at the his uh, looking at it sometimes perhaps is almost like Frodo touching the file or Arwen's pendant instead of the ring um, later on at the end of the story. Yeah, that's an interesting um, that's an interesting comparison. I wonder. Um, again, it certainly is. These are certainly much more wholesome uh, uh, mementos, and you'll remember that. Um, it is interesting, Kendall, that you should recall this because this is exactly what Frodo is going to be thinking. If you remember ahead, Frodo is going, when he's thinking about the coat, is going to be thinking that he wished that Bilbo had brought home nothing more perilous, right, from his journey uh, than that. Um, there is the one dark, significant, corrosive, radioactive memento that Bilbo brought home from his journey. But then again, it is also, um, it is also, that was the act of providence, right? Um, Bilbo was the ring finder. He was the one chosen to do it. I mean, it was the greatest miracle of the whole story, right? That it did happen. So, um, there's definitely sort of both sides to that there. Um, and yes, Eruichel, I agree. Uh, in a Catholic sense, they're sacramentals conveying a grace and remembrance. Um, likewise, with Frodo's connection to the file. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, like that. Like that. Um, good. And yes, the reference to... Um, um, hardly feeling any weight. You hardly feel any weight when you put it on. Uh, does somebody was saying before that this seems like an important piece of foreshadowing uh, for the weight of the ring that Frodo is going to be bearing later on, unlike that other memento of Bilbo's journey, right? Um, the coat um, is you will hardly feel any weight uh, when you put it on. Um, it is not going to burden you. On, it will protect you. It will connect you to me um, and through me to, you know, the adventurous tradition behind me. Um, and of course, in, in a sense, all the way back to Baron and Luthien. Um, but it won't weigh you down. It won't burden you. Right. Again, unlike that other gift that he's given him. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Kurtzimus, the reference to the fact that it's an oddly heavy, that it's rather heavy for its size and then hardly feeling any weight when you put it on is what convinced me what convinces me that it's rolled into a very small parcel indeed um because it would be i mean a mail shirt howsoever lightweight would be heavier than you would exp if you saw something that was the size of i don't know what it would be the size of rolled up it's got to be small though i mean i think it's it's going to be pretty compact um but, you know, definitely something you can just hold in your hands like this. And it would be heavier than you would think. I mean, what does it look like? A, a cloak, maybe? You know, something like that? A burrito-sized? Yeah, maybe. Some, something about like that? Exactly. Right. Um, um, but a burrito made of mithril. So a mithril burrito would be heavier than an average burrito. Uh, so I, I think we can probably all agree on that. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, it is also possible that it's a property that it acquires when you wear it. I can't, um, I can't, uh, um, I can't rule that out. Um, I can't rule that out, but, um, yeah, 
Yeah. Frodo's objection that he doesn't think he should look right in it. I should look... Well, I don't think I should look right in it. Um, he interrupts himself. Any guesses on what word he doesn't say there? And I agree, Mr. Bigga. Mithril Burrito would be a pretty good band name. Uh, I agree. I'm not sure what kind of band would be a good... Uh, that would be a good name for, but... Um, um, a ska band. <laughs> I like that. Um, foolish. Possibly foolish. Um, I should look foolish. Possibly even ridiculous. Right? Um, absurd. These are words that Bilbo used. Right? Um, and this is why he laughs. Uh, 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 just what I said myself. Right? Um he said he did in fact say, but I, you know, that I feel magnificent, but I expect I look rather absurd. Right. Um, and I, I think that's exactly the thing that, um, uh, I think that's exactly the thing, uh, that the kind of thing anyway, whether he's going to use that word or not, that Frodo was about to say, um, but he stops himself and says, well, I don't think I should look right in it, said Frodo. Right. He doesn't want Bilbo to think that he's, you know, mocking or spurning his gift. Um, but yes, I agree. His hobbit sense objects to it. I agree. I agree. Um, I don't think I should look right. It wouldn't, it wouldn't suit him. Right. It, it's not fitting for him to be dressed in this fancy coat shining like moonlit silver and studded with white gems. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, that's not him. That's not him. Just what I said myself, said Bilbo. But never mind about looks. You can wear it under your outer clothes. Come on. So, okay, but never mind about looks. This is him getting back to and useful, right? Um, this is uh, this is not a cosmetic upgrade, Frodo. Right? That's not what's happening here. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree, Kendall. It is funny that Pippin is later called the Prince of the Halflings, but doesn't get this mithril coat. Um, yes, yes. Um, never mind about looks. And I agree, Almeria, that pretty much does mean uh, you do look foolish, but we can make it work. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, never mind about looks. You can wear it under your outer clothes. Why does he want him to hide it? Come on, you must share this secret with me. Don't tell anybody else. Why not? Why not? And yes, JJ and Aranas, you're absolutely right that Bilbo is saying it's okay, you can still equip your old gear cosmetically. Yes, yes. Um, why does he say that? Now, it makes sense that Frodo wouldn't go around wearing it publicly, right? I mean, you might want to keep a lower profile than that, Frodo, would be sound advice, right? Um, wear it under your outer clothes because... Seriously, you're going to stick out like a sore thumb in that thing. And 
Um, you're going to have every, you know, every, every fortune hunting brigand uh, that you come within five miles of chasing after you. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I, I'm not saying that doesn't make sense, right? But why make it a secret? Why don't tell anybody else? Don't tell anybody else. Don't tell Gandalf. Don't tell Aragorn. Don't tell Marion, Pippin, and Sam. Why not? Why not? Um, that's not obvious, I think. Um, <laughs> right. As Mr. Biggest says, okay, you, if anyone asks you're Mr. Underhill and you don't have a mithril coat, it is an interesting parallel to that, uh, to that sort of moment. Um, uh, I don't, I can't think of a practical reason. I mean, I can't, I cannot believe that he's thinking like, don't tell everybody else because they'll blab. Like, seriously, what are the orcs going to hear about it? You know, from Marion Pippin or something like it's, you know, Pippin might be a loudmouth, but, uh, but seriously, like who's going to find out? Um, you know, who's going to care? Um, yeah, I don't, um, I don't know. You know, I, I don't, I, I don't see necessarily a really, uh, um, a really good reason for that. Now, Ambrosius Aurelianus, I wonder, uh, with the ring able to work on people's desires, best not to dangle a mithril coat on an almost helpless small fellow before the eyes of most, like, for example, Boromir. I wonder. On the one hand, that makes sense. The desire for the ring and the desire for the mithril coat are indeed paralleled together, right? Um, uh, when we get the orcs fighting over the coat, there will be a, a kind of parallel that's established there. So on the one hand, I acknowledge that. But on the other hand, I have to say that I, it feels to me, and I'll, we'll see, we'll see what I think about this as we move forward, but from here, it seems to me that, how to say it, the two things appeal to quite different audiences, perhaps, is one way that I would, um, that I would say it, right? Um, that is, um, people who are drawn to the ring are almost never people that I would expect to want to pinch the mithril coat. People that are overcome with desire for the mithril coat tend to be people who would not desire the ring for themselves. Do you see what I mean? Um... Evil Dr. Cannon, I don't think the orcs would want the ring. Not for themselves. Grishnok has a notion, right? 
Um, but we're never really quite sure what his notion is. It is clearly get the ring away from Ugluk so he doesn't take it to Saruman. But what exactly Grishnok means to do with it? Um, I'm not sure. But I still think that even for the orcs, their relationship with the ring, I'm not saying they're not interested in the ring. I'm not saying that. But I don't think that they're drawn to the ring in the way that Boromir is. They're drawn to it, but not in the same way. We know Saruman wants the ring. We know Denethor is tempted by the ring. We know that Boromir briefly um, falls into it. Kendall, exactly. We don't see Grishnok. Grishnok doesn't monologue, right? No, the ring's not actually there, but still. Um, yeah. Well, for Thoughtless, the orcs are tempted to set up on their own with lots of loot handy without the ring. That's them escaping or believing they can escape the influence of the ring. Um, yeah, yeah. So anyway, I just, I don't think that the two desires are very similar. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, Neil Pythonian, for sure, again, like, that he should conceal it from view, right? You know, is like, he clearly shouldn't just wear it as his outer layer, right? I mean, that would be ridiculous, um, drawing everybody's attention like that. Um, but yeah, I, more than anything, I think you must share this secret with me. And a couple of you have been uh, kind of talking this way, um, that he's... Yeah, I think, I think I'm agreeing with both Matt and people said similar things to Matt before, um, and then to, with JJ here as well. I think it's a combination of Bilbo having a joke on people. It's kind of hobbitry. Um, it will amuse him to think that Frodo is safe and nobody else knows, right? Um, for the Mithril Coat the presence of the mithril coat not to be generally known, um, it probably will uh, uh, become known right at some point. Um, and then it will be a funny joke. And and so it will, right? And so it will. Um, so yeah, I do think, um, uh, I do think that he is, you know, planning a joke with a capital J like he did at his party. Um, in one sense, yes. But I also think that I agree with JJ that part of what he's doing is um, he knows that Frodo is uncomfortable and that Frodo himself will be more comfortable if others don't know that he has it. That he feels... He doesn't think that he should look right in it. Um, he's feeling self-conscious about taking it, about wearing it, Um and I do agree. I think that that last speech, the primary theme of that last speech on this passage is Bilbo trying to convince him to take it. Never mind about looks. Yes, uh, I said myself that I expected that I look absurd in it, right? It doesn't really suit us exactly. We are not 
in fact, heroic Germanic figures, right? Um, we are mere humble hobbits circulating mathems, but, um, um, but never mind about looks. You can hide it. Wear it under your outer clothes. Share this secret with me, right? Humor me. Um, let's make this into a game, right? And won't it be funny? Uh, when they find out that you're actually invulnerable to <laughs> almost all weapons, right? That'll be hilarious. Don't tell anybody else. Um, because then he turns to his next um, argument. But I should feel happier if I knew you were wearing it. Humor me, right? Do it for my sake. Um, you might not feel... You might feel that you're making too much of yourself, right? Like you deserve special protection, like you've merited this gift. Remember also, when Thorin gave it to Bilbo, he gave it to him as a reward for his service, right? And Frodo might also be thinking, what have I done? I've not done anything yet, right? I, don't, I haven't earned this. Um, you know, all of these mementos of your journey, these great... Um, and priceless things that you, you know, won, found and won and earned on your great journey. I'm just starting my journey. I'm still in the running out without my hat phase of the journey, right? Maybe you can give me your secondhand dwarf cloak, um, you know, your secondhand dwarf hood, which, which is, uh, you know, how Bilbo got his, right? Um, secondhand dwarf hood, right? But I don't, I don't, it's, it would be absurdly self-aggrandizing for me to wear this um, princely suit of armor as if I deserved it, right? Um, so yes, I do think that that's a big part of why he's going, um, why he's going in this direction, right? Um, and then the emotional appeal. I should feel happier if I knew you were wearing it. Right, humor an old man, um, and then the final uh, touch on its usefulness. Right, um, I have a fancy it would turn even the knives of the Black Riders. He ended in a low voice. Right, he doesn't want to go there. He doesn't really want to talk about that. He seems a little bit uneasy bringing that up to Frodo. Right, but. Should there be, should you find yourself in a place where some ringwraith or other is attempting to stab you in the back of the shoulder, then no. No, um, that won't work anymore. Now will it? Um, and somebody was asking before that, uh, um, do I think it actually would turn the knives of the Black Riders? Heck yes. I absolutely think it would turn the knives of the Black Riders. Um... Uh, yeah, yeah, totally do, totally do. Um, we don't have much evidence that there is any weapon that it won't turn. Do we have any reason to think, any concrete reason, I mean, to think that there is a single weapon that would not be deflected by the Mithril Code? Um... Exactly. They're, they're physical weapons, Emma Thorne. Exactly. Exactly. Um, um, yes. Yes. Um, 
<laughs> a Warhammer. Yes, it's true. Uh, Chainmail is uh, not the greatest against budgeting weapons. That's that's true. That's true. <laughs> so yes, a very large budgeting weapon, it would not do very much good against. Um, a hammer or an anvil? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, a very small needle indeed, Kendall? Probably. Yes, probably. Uh, but again, we never see him... We, we will see Frodo stabbed by spears and shot by arrows, and um, he is not going to be materially harmed by any of these things. Um, yeah, I agree, Mad Violinist. Maybe that's why the Witch King is wielding a mace. <laughs> right when it when it comes to it in the battle, I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I agree, Dan. Not only are the Morgul knives physical weapons, but they seem to be deliberately designed to splinter. I agree. I do think that they would. Um, um, uh, I, I I I definitely believe that the uh, Morgul blade would not have penetrated the mithril coat. Um, Gollum's teeth, yes, Gollum's teeth would uh, would not get through it either. But of course, uh, Gollum is unlikely to bite you in the back uh, or the belly or something like that. He's uh, or your shoulder. Well, I guess if you're Sam, he's going to bite your shoulder, but that's different. Um, um, see, if Sam had been wearing a mithril coat, he would have been. Uh, uh, he wouldn't have gotten bitten by by Gollum. Um, yeah, yeah. Nope, I don't think anything's getting through. Anything realistic is gonna is gonna be getting through there. Um, you're right, Neoplatonian. If only, in retrospect, if only Bilbo had had a nice pair of mithril gloves. Um, okay, so he has convinced Frodo uh, to wear this. Um, all right, I think we do have one more passage, and then the poem. Uh, we have the uh, and the next passage is going to be the most. I, I like the most British passage uh, in some ways in the Lord of the Rings uh, when um, the culmination of this gift giving scene and we come to this moment of, you know, the exchange of deep affection and both Frodo and Bilbo are going to be frightfully uh, uncomfortable about that. Um, so uh, anyway, but it is time for our field trip now. So we're going to stop now. Um, we will do um, um, we will see. Frodo putting on the coat, uh, and their final, uh, uh, the final exchanges of, uh, of, of affection next week, and then the poem. Um, so I know, right, Rowan, we just did four entire paragraphs, which is really quite a lot. Um, uh, oh, and what are the gems? The white gems? Yeah. Don't know. Don't know. Don't know. I think that he would say diamonds if they were diamonds. Um, I mean, that's a word Tolkien uses. Um, he says they're white gems. Uh, we've got pearl and crystal on the belt, but neither... It's, he doesn't call them either pearl or crystal, and pearls aren't exactly gems anyway. Um, so yeah, don't know. Don't know what they are. I kind of, uh, I kind of think he says white gems just because we don't necessarily know what they are. Like, we don't necessarily have these gems anymore. But, um... Anyway. All right. But I'm really stopping now. Okay. <laughs> all right. Uh, field trip time. Good evening, Druid's Fire. How are you? 
I'm doing Splendivorous. How are you, sir? I'm very good. So, yes, we have... Uh, oops. I just totally did exactly the wrong thing. I hate it when I hit the wrong button. Uh, well, let's see if it works. Uh, <laughs> that's not exactly what I call working. But um, that's just not right. Hang on. Okay. No. Oh, well. Darn it. What did you break? I broke everything. That's my problem. Okay. Uh, uh, hang on. I'm trying to fix it. Um, that's fine. I'm just getting everybody rated okay. up nice and neat. Got it. That's just what I wanted. Okay. I think I unbroke it. Awesome. Mostly. Almost unbroke it. Almost Nancy, anyone can be on the shenanigans committee. There, it's we're an anarchic institution, apparently. Are you? Are you? An, I don't know. I don't know. Syndicalist just... commune. <laughs> Something like that. I I have a feeling somebody took my uh, my title from Slack and decided to run with it, and I'm okay with that. Um, I am officially the instigator of shenanigans, and it's yes. Like, did you see that? Did you see that we have the shenanigans committee uh, design yes. in our merch store? Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm referring to. Yes, I was told that I and Sparrow have to be on that committee. Yes, yes, yeah. It was also a New England moot reference when uh, uh, the shenanigans committee struck. Because I finally prepared myself here. I think. Okay, all right. So we're headed back to Oregon. Which I think we start at Gwingris, because that was the last milestone we got to still. Mm -hmm. So we'll meet up at Gwingris, and we'll ride out from there, down the road. All right. Um, so, uh, oh wait, what was I going to say? Oh, hey, look, it's daylight. Hi. That's unusual. Is yeah, it that never happened. It's dusk, of course it is. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> okay. Well, let's uh, let's get on the road and enjoy the daylight. If anybody needs an invitation to the raid, I think I have everybody. I send it to Kiriana. All right. Are you riding the regular horse or your war steed today? Regular. I try not to ride the war steed unless at great need. Or if I'm crossing long distances. In a Alrighty. particularly straight line. <laughs> they are a bit recalcitrant, yes, indeed. Yes. All right. Off we go. Let us head down the road. We got to that rather peculiar logger logging camp um mm -hmm. by that bunch of dunlendings who have Agreed. clearly been sent up here for no, up to no good uh from saruman he's surprisingly brelandish uh looking set of uh structures yeah the lumberyard you mean yes mm-hmm yes and that banner, which is the lumber, uh, is that lumberyard, is that near the road here? It is, isn't it? It's kind of, yeah. 
Okay. I'm tempted to run back to that banner and look at it while there's daylight, but... I think you should. Maybe I will. I mean, I was just gave into my temptation to pick indigo plant along the way, so, you know. I see. Very well, one has to do what one has to do. Indeed so. So we're going to want to hang bang a left here shortly? Yes. I'm not quite that short way. I just sort of mm -hmm. randomly veered off the road. Um, okay. So I, normal. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So here is where the left-hand turn comes. And I'm just gonna go up here and see. Yeah, just north of the road up here is where that camp was. Let me just take a quick look and see if I can find that banner. Okay, there's the... There's the wood. There's the pond. It was on the other side of the pond, the banner, as I recall. Uh-huh. Here's the stump and the rock in the sort of trellis there. Okay, and there is the... The bloody okay. banner. The bloody banner. Which is hard to see in almost any light, but... Okay. Yeah, just a dirty rag with blood stains and... The claw marks, which look like bear claws or something? Yeah, they do kind of look like bear claws. I mean, those are definitely claws, which is strange, because it's all hung about with boar tusks. And then we have, like, the rakings of, like, the three separate rakings of, uh, um, uh... And the blood at the same yeah. time, the blood's caused by the claws? I would imagine they would go in line with the claws, right? <laughs> it's a it's a very it's a very abstract kind of banner in that sense, right? Like mm -hmm. we want to evoke an attack as by a bear, right? So imagine when you see the banner, imagine that you've just been assaulted by a bear and all we're going to leave of you is something that looks like this. I mean, that's an incredibly indirect it is um, Almereo, almost like modern art in that way. Um, rather than representing a fearsome bear or something like that, we're, or even a set of bloody claws or something, we're just going to, um, we're going uh, <laughs> to, it'd be almost like having a banner that just has like um, um, a sidewalk chalk silhouette of a corpse on it. You know, like, this is all we're going to leave after the fact, right? Is uh, is almost what that kind of effect seems to be. Exactly. Yeah, it, like bear, Amare, it, it, it evokes the feeling of bear. Exactly. But it could be possibly dragon or worm, because I don't recall there being any bears in this neck of the woods, but there are worms nearby. It's true, though I don't think the claw marks need have been made by an actual bear and or worm. Um... I mean, of course, one can't rule out the fact that um, this, um, right, somebody just turns into a bear right there. Um, uh, you can't rule out the fact that this was just, in fact, a plain banner and it, in fact, just got covered with blood and scratches one day, you know, um, during 
uh, uh, some incident or other. Um, but the colors kind of remind me of you know ancient, super ancient cave drawings. Yeah, I I, I don't ever remember seeing a banner quite like this, and it's not an orc banner. I mean, I don't think it's an orc banner. It's a Dunlending banner. And it's way abstract for any other Dunlending art we've seen. Okay. All right. That's all. We were here last week. I just wanted to see it in the daylight. So there we are. Because, I mean... Definitely not an orc banner, because the pole is definitely too nice. And decorated with boar tusks rather than human bones. So, again, presumably. Um, uh, Presumably not. Um... Yeah. All right. Where are we? Okay. We're turning left. Got it. Okay. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Yes. Left. To the south. That's, that's where we're going. We're going to the next ruin. Pend Eregion mm-hmm. is the region that we've come to. Yeah. Now, I remember, Emily, that the function, the quest function of that... Um, banner is to summon the boss to fight at the culmination of the quest chain. Um, But that suggests even more strongly that it's, you know, his banner, right? That it's the boss's banner. Okay. All right. More elf ruins. Now, what do we see right away? Once again, not a defensive structure. Look at all these windows, huge windows at ground level. And then this, I mean, it looks like there might have been a gate here, right? But it was clearly just like a a decorative gate. I think there might have been a gate, but it would have been like a metal gate, right? Like a... I can imagine, like a, again, more with the curly cues and and kind of fancy, mm-hmm. decorative thing. But there might not even have been one. It might have just always have been an archway. Well, I'm not seeing anything that would like seem to be like hinges or supports for a door of some kind. No, not necessarily. Maybe. I don't either. And they are round columns, so perhaps that wouldn't be the best place to attach such a door. Um, yeah, yeah. Right, it could be a gate to keep the Pomeranian from getting out, JJ. It's it's possible. Um, but yeah, okay, so, and we have the same kind of, uh, you know, highly decorative, swirly gold inlay that we had before. Um, this really interesting decorative tree pot, right? Um, with its cute little feet down here. Okay, so some of these... Oh, now, remember, these this, these places are thousands, like 5,000 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, so the trees... I mean, like, these trees, like this one standing here, right, is... There's no reason to think that this tree is original. Um, oh, this absolutely does not, not. does not look like a 5,000-year-old tree. But yet these trees in pots here probably are. I mean, that looks like a potted tree. It is a potted tree. Which would imply, if the tree is so tiny, then somebody's been in here recently to to mess with it. Maybe. 
that doesn't look like it was very uh artfully shaped but um but yeah some kind of because if I mean if the original potted tree had died, presumably a single tree would not have grown out of the center of it in exactly the same way. Yeah, right. yeah, uh, Wolfie. Yeah, exactly. I think this is an elvish, an older bonsai tree that's just totally out of control. That's what happens if you leave your bonsai tree to grow for five thousand years with no guidance. With no guidance at all. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. This is a much less open concept settlement than the other, right? I'm going to dismount too. What am I, what am I riding around for? Um, now, notice we have exactly the same textures. Here's that kind of chased mm-hmm. metal um, texture here. Yeah, the brush these, metal, like yeah, the copper. The brush well, metal, it looks like right? copper, but it would have it would have uh, oxidized in five thousand years. Right, right. Clearly not copper. Um, we have like a, the, the inlay, yeah. the greenish inlay with everything. It's a nice uh, offset. Reminds me of my elven. Oh, you mean the the game. stone, the 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 like teal stone here? Yeah, with the with the veins of like white in it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, and we saw some of that before too. So it's very similar to Glingoris. It's you know presumably the same. Okay, and this is the edge, right? Yes, this is the edge. So here next, again, we just have this doorway once again. No interest in security. Um, And not just security, but again, with you, I say there doesn't look like there ever was a door here. This was always an archway, I think. I'm just kind of wondering if maybe the hill has slid down a bit, because just at the angle of the, the hill down into the doorway... It seems very strange that they would have built. I mean, yeah. Obviously, the out of character reason is that's how the devs placed it, but in character, it looks like something was built and then a landslide came down and then grass grew over it. Or something. Yeah, it does. Uh, I, I agree. It's likely it changed a little bit. It is a little bit strange to be like, and now we have a door on an incredibly steep hill, right? Um, I love the view out from here. You can see nothing but the side of this hill, right? I mean, it, it does seem a little bit strange. Uh, it is clear that they deliberately built this down in the valley with those under those hills right there. Mm-hmm. Um, right, right. I mean, the the mountains presumably were there already, um, but um, but I agree, it is very possible that things have changed a bit. Um, and we're getting half orcs here, so again, these are yep. more evidence of. Sarumonic occupation, right? That would make In sense versus the Freeland uh, half orcs that we are accustomed to on the mm-hmm. other side of the troll trolls. Okay. So we have this other gateway. So this whole we walk in first, and then this was a courtyard. Mm-hmm. Right? This was a courtyard, clearly. And we have our potted bonsai trees, and we have a gateway to this place. And this seems to be some kind of building. Maybe this was a reception hall. Like you come in, you ride in through the gate, or the gate archway, right? And you come in here, and somebody takes your horse, and the stables are probably over in that direction where the interesting rubble is. And then you 
went into the welcoming hall in here, right? And you'd be greeted in here, and then you'd be ushered right through into here where they were serving hors d'oeuvres or something. Little right? finger foods. Yeah, that's where the party is, right? Um, so we got some party areas in here, but it's all kind of indoors. Although, again, they had a very vague sense of indoors. We can see that the whole thing was arched over mm-hmm. with those trellises, again, which may or may not have been covered with glass. Um, so it was still very bright. It would have been very open day and night, um, an open view of the sky um, throughout. I don't think this was roofed over, you think? Um, I don't no. think maybe this courtyard was. Yeah, I think it was an open courtyard. You can see the arches went over that way, so that other part was definitely arched over. But, yeah, here not so much, I don't think. Yeah, again, you can see the like double archway that was used to be over the entrance point. Okay, but then we pass through here. So this was, again, this courtyard. We have a wall here to establish the courtyard, and then what a few separate buildings in here this was a separate building it looks like and then this was a separate building down here well Little it's possible there was some tower connection, thing? they do seem to be outbuildings rather than the actual main facility yeah maybe now this ditch over here these ditches rather i guess i should say this, I suspect, this is my most likely candidate for geogra- geographic feature that was not here at the time when this place was built. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be that way. Oh, and we've got some wolves, right, down here. Wolves and what? Boars? Who's this over here? Yeah. Oh, it's another. It's another warg. Okay. Wolves um, and wargs and boars and Bears. Yeah. No bears, actually. Right, no bears yet. Okay. Hamathorn says there could be a, could have been a stream here, which would kind of make sense if 5,000 years of erosion would have done yep. something to this, yeah. Yeah. Um... Yes, exactly. Dry steam beds as the... Like the they're like geological foreshadowings of the Saranen later on, right? Um, I agree, but, um, but yeah, from the side. So this looks like another building, like the other building, like the other building that we saw over there. So, so there were several, several separate buildings. I don't see here much evidence of, once again, much evidence of living quarters. Did they just kind of wander about? Huh. Have a look at this guy here. What's on his belt buckle? Not to like get in his personal space or anything, but oh man, he's 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 attempting to kill somebody now. It's really complicated. We have lobies here who, right, right, who are going to aggro him. Yeah. Yes, that is the case. Sorry, I was just uh, briefly enjoying the. it looked uh, like a, a face of some kind in, in the brief maybe. place I got. I'm not sure I saw a face, but it was pretty ornate. It was unexpectedly ornate. Um, Let's see. Interesting okay. little sward of grass here. 
Um, the skirmisher yeah. does not have one, but he has an interesting crown on his uh, chest. A crown? Like a crown, huh? like a crown design. Where is he? Uh, over where I am. Uh, oh, this Yeah, lobbies don't get close to this dude. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Maybe. Huh. He's, he's got blood on his hands. Yeah. It's like totally unsanitary. Unsanitary. Unsanitary as well, I think. Um... Hmm. It's crownish. It's definitely crownish. Oh, who's he fighting the bear? Yeah. Yeah, our Bjorning friend is only level 48. Aha. Right, he's on level for out here. Well, that's alright. So is there... There's nothing else over here, is there? Among no, these stones? Not that I'm aware of. Just, uh, you know, stuff from the, uh... Somebody summoned the bad guy. What? Oh, it looks like somebody's actually questing here. Oops. Oh, oops. Yeah. Sorry, well, at least we won't necessarily hog all the kills. Um, sorry, I was just looking at these standing stones and trying to see if there was anything. Sometimes a rock is just a rock. Um... But I agree uh, with uh, Amathorn that it's very possible that... Um... So first of all, Nancy is pointing out that Sauron, with his army, of course, did pass through here in the Second Age. Um, so there's every reason to think that a bunch of these things got um, um, destroyed, like actively torn down during that time. And that's true. Um Especially this one. I mean, this one would have been on the way. Uh, Gwingris is a little tucked out of the way, so that could potentially have escaped notice. But I also don't think there's much reason to think that there was much here. Um, I like the idea, um, as um, Amathorn was suggesting, that um, uh, they could have lived uh, in tents like we see them doing in Lothlorien, uh, like the pavilion that they make uh, for the company, you know, they set up for the company uh, in Lothlorien. Um, I think it very likely um, that the elves are not necessarily living, um, you know, full-time in these places, but uh, um, just kind of circulating Nomadic. from one party spot to another. Um yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't know what that peak is. I think it's... Yeah, I don't think it's... Uh, I don't think it's a significant peak. I think it's just one of the closer peaks of the Misty Mountains. Yeah, it is the wrong direction for Carothras. That's why I was just like checking on the map where I was. Yeah, I'm not facing the Redhorn Pass. So... Yeah. Yeah, you'll know Carothras when we get there. Oh yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It's a very cold place, full of yep. voices. Um. No, it's to the southeast of us, JJ. 
Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's I'm facing the right direction, but I'm too far north, essentially. If I were further south and facing this direction, I would be. I mean, because I'm parallel to it, but it's not it's not quite. I don't think it's yeah, quite Yeah, well, it. we can go up there because it's the next pass down when we get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. All right. So next time, let's look. I guess we can go down to um, Ekaterregion next time. Is that milestone there? Yeah. Yeah. We'll go down and set the milestone there. Um and then we will avoid the Redhorn Pass, and we'll go through Low Holland. I think we can skirt around and, well, don't really want to go to the Saranen yet either. I think we'll go to Ekaterregian and then move from there over towards Mirabel, actually. Okay. Is, I think, where we can go. Elf ruins um, and more elf ruins. That's it. Like Lembus. That's it. All right. Very good. Um... Well, thank you for joining us today. We did not see one of the things I was looking for. I did. We did not see any of those um, tree antlers. I know. I was things. actually kind of looking for them, and I because I yep, didn't remember I was seeing too. them. I was too. I was too. Oh, but disappointed. Um, yep, didn't see any. So we'll see. We'll see. Um, all right. Wingress thank for you the guys trees. for joining us. Yeah. Um, we will be, Valori should be back next week. She was under the weather today, um, but we should be back uh, next week and we will, um, uh, we will continue our way south here through Arikian. Thanks everybody for joining us. Good night now. Night. <laughs>